The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray and welcome to the final Michael Reed Show of 2019. Coming up, another attempted ATM robbery takes place, this time in RD, while a cannabis grow house is found in Dundalk. We'll have the details. We look back on the local and the national stories that made the news in 2019. We'll be hearing about the extraordinary obstacles facing Irish emigrants who want to return home. Tolls on the M3 between Clonee and Kells are to increase next week, meaning hard-pressed motorists get hit again. We get reaction. We talk to the men and women who'll be providing emergency services over the Christmas. And we'll be asking people in the Loudmeath area to tell us about the best Christmas present they ever received. That's all coming up between now and 11am right here on The Michael Reed Show. Well, it was a busy week and indeed a busy weekend for the Gardaí in County Louth. A cannabis grow house was discovered in Dundalk at the weekend and thieves failed in their attempt to steal an ATM in RD at the weekend. I'm joined in studio by Ruth O'Connell from our newsroom. Uh, Ruth, first of all, talk to us about this cannabis grow house that was found in Dundalk. It initially came in as... uh just checking that okay the sound levels wise um, it initially came in as a house fire it was Dundalk Fire Service responded to that initially the fire crews were called to the scene um, in the St Mary's Road area around 8 o'clock last night and it's when they entered um, they discovered in an upstairs bedroom um, that that had been um, converted into a, a cultivation um, room if you like a grow house and I, I'm very familiar having covered all of these cases over the years that they have irrigation systems and heat Heating systems and lighting systems installed in these kind of premises when they're converted. And the, the, there was an ATM, uh, if you like, issue in RD at the weekend. We thought we'd seen the last of this, but yeah, uh, the thieves... last month um, yeah. w- was hit, and um, th- that was stolen in that case. But yes, um, shortly before uh, five on, on Saturday morning, um, they they moved in again and. Uh, the reason this didn't succeed this time, the actual uh, bucket on the digger failed. And that's, I think, the difference between this month's one and last month's. Um, that they uh, basically used, they couldn't get in and take to take the ATM. There was a, a Garda checkpoint uh, very, very close by at the time. Um, but now I'm, I know it was foggy, certainly. I went along to the scene later in the morning and it was very foggy and dark. It was very hard to make out anything. So I'm not sure if they were that cheeky and they decided to still go in or they just didn't see the Garda checkpoint. But the guards were there within almost within seconds, certainly within minutes on the scene. Um, but the, there was a jeep um, found burnt out in, um, on the road to Talonstown um, shortly uh, afterwards. Uh, we, we thought some months back we'd seen the last of this, but clearly there's still a gang of operating in the northeast who believe that uh, robbing ATMs is the way to make their their few quid so it Absolutely. suggests that the and Gardaí... I think there's possibly more than one gang as well but you know there uh, developments were made in terms of if you remember earlier this year on Good Friday there was a double ATM robbery in Kells and when I arrived that's the first thing I asked was it another Kells? But um, the guards uh, were very officious and would tell me nothing at the scene. Um, they were making no comment. But it, it was possible that they could have hit two ATMs there in RD the other morning. And maybe they'd planned to it before the, the bucket on the digger failed. 
Okay, we leave it there. That's uh, Ruth O'Connell there from our newsroom with that update on that uh, cannabis grow house that was discovered in Dundalk at the weekend and the attempted theft of an ATM machine in RD. Now, it's that time of year where hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants are returning home from all corners of the world and for many, the upturn in the economy just may convince them to return home for good. However, it seems that if you are Irish and you want to return home, the state, it would appear, is putting every roadblock possible in the way to discourage you from returning to the land of your birth. Kieran Staunton from Westport emigrated to New York in 1982. He heads up the Irish Lobby for Immigration Reform in the US, which aims to address the plight of the undocumented Irish there. His wife, Orla, is a loud woman, and uh, we're happy to have Kieran here in studio uh, this morning. First of all, Kieran, uh, talk us through how ridiculous the situation is for Irish immigrants who actually want to return home to the country they were born in. Thank you, Ken. Well, first of all, let's remember who the Irish immigrants are. They're actually Irish citizens. They grew here, grew up here, and worked here. And as you remember, 2000, 2007, 2008, you had a boom and bust here. 700,000 Irish people were forced to flee to all across the world to get jobs. Many of those now have families reared or semi-reared or have young children and want to return to the land of their birth. They feel so, and rightfully, that they should be fit to return as the status they left. Instead, they have to prove in many instances that they're actually planning to live here full-time, that they're actually from Ireland and that they have many obstacles unnecessarily put up in front of them. And on one hand, we have a government saying, come back to work. You have 4 4.5% unemployment, which... Is still, grow, is still growing. You have a robust economy. And they're saying, come and stay here. You saw the scenes on national television of the tears of joy of all those young people coming in in the last few days. Well, in two weeks' time, if the cameras are there, there'll be tears of sorrow for all those young people are leaving again, leaving their loved ones. And there's no need to. Many of them would love to stay here. Give us some yeah. examples of, if you like, the roadblocks that returning Irish immigrants, particularly those with young families, are facing. Well... As you'll know, as someone who's covered this over the last number of years, and we have indeed highlighted because when the case we were building in the States to deal with the illegals, as we call them, the undocumented Irish, there was a narrative coming from here, well, there's plenty of work in Ireland for them. But if any of them came back, then you look at the look at the outline, what's ahead of them. If they come back with their American driver's licence, they cannot automatically get an Irish driver's licence. They've got to sit and do their tests all over again, which can go on for a number of months, take a number of classes to prove their car insurance. They have no, no claims bonuses, no no claims bonuses. So as you know, the car insurance carry on as it is is bad enough. But for someone who's returning from Australia or from America and then getting their children into school or getting them into secondary school, getting mortgages, proving where they've been, proving their records, going back over time, it's almost as if they never existed in this native Ireland. They're Irish citizens returning to the land of the birth that they left. And therefore, there shouldn't be any obstacles sitting in front of them. Um, I hosted an event uh, with you in Galway two years ago, and I remember it was streamed uh, on the internet, and we had people uh, writing in from places like Australia and Dubai and Canada, people practically in tears that they wanted to come home, but they felt that the state basically had disowned them, and 
and that um, the, the feeling, this was the sentiment that they were born in Ireland, educated in Ireland, they left Ireland for a better life. They felt that if they were economic migrants coming to Ireland from outside the EU, that the state is effectively bending over backwards to facilitate them. Is that, if you like, um, uh, a sense of the feedback you've been getting? We've heard that from a number of people because the, a number of people who have come back here and ex- expected this to be waiting for them, expected the fact that they are Irish citizens first and foremost, and they could continue on back to the villages or the towns they lived in, and they found that isn't there. But even in the official narrative, they're not being com- commented in. Now, we've seen the Indicon that was set up at the time after our event in Galway, and even they have made almost 30 recommendations for the government to get involved in. The bottom line is that the government has not done enough. They need to actually grasp this issue, as they've done with other issues, and be serious about it. The Indicon's report cost 75,000 euros of taxpayers' money. They made a number of recommendations. If it's half-heartedly looked at, it should be pulled out, as we have said. There should be one-stop shop when people are returning. And don't forget, we're talking about large numbers of people. You saw last week on the National Airways of the people crying out tears of joy. Two weeks' time, I hope there's cameras there to show the reality of when people are separated, in some cases grandparents separated from their young grandchildren having to go off and from their children where they could actually be signing up and getting work here in this in this country okay you've obviously dealt a lot with the department of foreign affairs in dublin i mean what are the the mandarins there actually saying to you about this well, again, they will say, well, it's complicated. Well, everything you don't want to deal with is complicated in life. If you want to deal with it, just grab it by the scruff of the neck and deal with it. They came up, their response was to come up with the Indicon report. The Indicon report was a very well put together report with recommendations. Those recommendations should have been put in place, landed, landed running, as it were. That was in February 2018. That still hasn't been dealt with fully. Um, are there any signs that the difficulties faced by returning Irish emigrants, those particularly who went in the 1980s when we had a recession then, is there any signs that perhaps uh, this is preventing, if you like, investors from coming home? Well, any time you have a hurdle, it doesn't matter how high the hurdle is, that is enough to dissuade people from getting on with what they'd like to do. So if they're investors who want to return here, they still have to rent uh, to buy a car. They still have to get their house. They still have to go through getting their children into, in some cases, second or third level education. And at all of those, there should be an open door policy, not one that's a hurdle. And each hurdle you go through, there's another one higher than it. So any of this is bad. When you have a 4% unemployment and you're looking for employees, you're looking for more people to join the employment lines, you have a couple of hundred thousand native sons and daughters overseas who would come home in the morning if you could only return, get rid of some of those obstacles. Any obstacle is a bad obstacle, no matter how high or how low it is. Uh, the recommendations in the Indican report to, to look at this, I mean, uh, are you any the wiser as to how soon they will be implemented? No, because they have some bits and pieces. It's, it's, it's an a la carte uh, attitude they've taken to it. It should be landed. It's a very good report. I've complimented Minister Cannon in doing this and doing the great work on it. But they need to put action. And there's no point hand-wringing and saying, well, one age, government agency doesn't want to do it, the other one does. Uh, the cont- bureaucrats have continuously found difficulties in doing it. Listen, if you want to make it happen, you have to make it happen. And there's no point talking or hand-wringing about it. This should be implemented implemented to the fullest, and it should be done as a matter of urgency. Um, just getting away from that, I mean, you head up the Irish lobby for immigration sure. reform in the United States. We had, I think, 
the best part of a million people left this country in the 1980s and uh, a huge chunk of them remain uh, I think as the phrase goes undocumented Um, are we looking at what 30, 40,000 Irish people in the US at present who perhaps are undocumented Um, there's been a push to get the visa deal that would be shared with Australia Where, where are we at with that? Well, the visa deal, the first and foremost, the deal they're dealing with Australia would not affect any undocumented Irish. This would be for future flow, people who want to go to, to America. Legally, in the future? In the fleet. There is nothing happening with the illegal situation. There's nothing happening under this president. There won't be anything happening under President Trump. And whether we get a different president to him in two years' time, who knows? There's a great willingness on behalf of the Democratic Congress. Republicans control the Senate. They're not going to move an immigration bill. Uh, it remains to be seen where or when we're going to come out with the Australian and the E3 visa bill. Um, we got the impression when Donald Trump uh, went into the White House that anybody who wasn't in the US with the proper papers would be kicked out. I mean, how scary is it for undocumented Irish people in the US at present? Well, we advise people strongly that time not to fall fall foul or fall victim of the 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 narrative at the time was everyone should be scared, everyone should run and hide. We had said to people that there was no way possible for any agencies that could round up eight million people and that they weren't going to go door to door and they didn't go door to door. And if you see the numbers of Irish deported under this administration, the numbers are down on previous administrations. You will not get deported unless you come in contact with government agencies. That's the reality. They don't come looking for people. Right, but if you're stopped on a highway um, for speeding and they check your licence and then they see that uh, Johnny O'Brien from Tipperary or wherever he's from uh, doesn't have the, if you like, the legal papers, is he in a a situation where he's vulnerable for deportation? Well, in in that case, they would stop them on the highway. More than likely, they would issue them a speeding ticket, have them turn up in court. It's when you turn up in court and the court system then as someone decides to do something about it but the regular police officer on the on the path as it were does not have any way of telling your legal status so even if you come in contact with local police but if you come run afoul of the police where someone's uh, done for assault on a police officer up in court on, on serious charges then you can have immigration coming after you Finally Kieran, just to wrap it up uh, Australia and Canada have been popular uh, if you like locations for Irish immigrants in the last 10 years but anybody who's young and is thinking of taking a chance and going to the United States in the current climate, what advice would you give them? Well, I've been always very optimistic about it. I've always said America has open doors, no matter what they say. If people want to go out there and go on the 90-day visa, go on the short-term thing, people should come and see it anyway. People shouldn't say, well, don't go to America because Trump is there or something along those lines. It's a broad country, 300 million people. I still believe it's the land of opportunity. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That's uh, Kieran Staunton from the Irish Lobby for Immigration Reform. If you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Well, it's that time of the year as we uh, look back on 12 very turbulent months in the political game and what a year it's been. We've had all sorts of crises. We've all sorts of votes of no confidence in various individuals uh, in government. And indeed, the question is being raised more frequently now in the last few days as to whether or not 
we're going to have a general election in the coming weeks or so. Well, to look back on a very uh, active 12 months, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Sean, let's uh, start off with the nurses' strike and the cost of the children's hospital. I mean, how much of a setback was this for the government, and in particular Simon Harris, in light of the fact that when he came into office, he said he was going to change things and that things would actually improve not only in terms of waiting lists within the hospitals, but that the staff would be looked after as well. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty dire year for health for the for the government. You've mentioned the Children's Hospital, the cost of which keeps on spiralling now, looking like it may be over €2 billion Euro and further claims going into the contract or the nurses' strike early on in the year, which really, I don't think we fully appreciated how much that affected morale in the health service, particularly among nurses. I know a few uh, personally, friends of mine, who actually left nursing and subsequently left the country after that particular strike because it's not in a nurse's DNA to not want to help people. They don't want to have to go off the wards. They didn't want to have to do it, but they felt they had to and they were in the corner to try and get some sort of a better pay deal for themselves and better conditions that they're working in. But it seems as though as the year has gone on, the conditions have got even worse. We haven't yet had the full effect of the, the flu season. That could be quite bad. We've seen record overcrowding in hospitals particularly in areas like Limerick, but also in our ladies and lords and in other hospitals around the country where things have been particularly bad. So the government has been, I mean, really limping into the new year when it comes to health. It has been an incredibly bad year, and it's going to be one of the things that's going to be hanging around there next when it comes to a general election, that they have failed to deal with so many things. Uh, even in the last few days, Fianna Fáil has come out very strongly attacking them, saying that when Fine Gael took government waiting lists were a lot shorter, there were a lot more beds, uh, but there were, you know, positions were better, and of course there was some cutback of that during the lean financial years, but that haven't got better even as the economy has picked up. So there's a, there's a big stick there to beat the government in what was a bad year in 2019. Uh, the spiralling cost of the proposed children's hospital, how damaging in PR terms was that for the government? Oh, hugely. I, I think it's something very tangible that people can get their, their teeth into when it comes to figures like that and something that we were promised initially would cost in the region of $650 million, now $1.7 billion, and looking as though that could rise even more. It's going to be one of the most expensive buildings in the world. And at one point you had ministers saying, well, let's hope if it's the most expensive, it'll be the best, which is not exactly the attitude you want from the people who are pulling the public purse strings. So I think it was a hugely damaging for the government and is one that is not necessarily going to go away because we know further cost claims have gone in. Let's talk about, if you like, the ongoing running story that has dominated the news since 2016, uh, Brexit. There was uh, fears leading up to the month of October that uh, the backstop provision would actually be the one that the British government might go for because uh, the DUP in particular felt that they did not want to be isolated from mainland Britain. But in the end, uh, fears of a return of physical infrastructure along the border is not going to happen. And the plan is that there will be checks at ports like Belfast and Larne and so on. I mean, is the government satisfied now that uh, the British Conservative Party is actually going to stick to the deal and that there won't be any, if you like, hidden landmines that might come along once the UK leaves at the end of next month and then completes its trade deal. 
well, it's a really interesting one because I think a lot of businesses are still kind of unsure of what this deal means. And while Boris Johnson has got the backing for it, and it will probably sail to the European Parliament as well uh, in January when they take a vote on it and, and Britain will leave on the 31st of January, a lot of the detail has been pretty woolly about where and when there would be checks. And certainly it came up in the UK election campaign without a, a real strong, satisfactory answer. I think the Irish government would probably have preferred Theresa May's deal. It was certainly clearer on what was there and the backstop provision was a lot better for Ireland than what was actually there. But there is some hope in government circles that because of the, the massive majority that Boris Johnson now has, he can have a bit of wiggle room and we've seen him move his political ideologies before. He was more of a, a centrist when he was the mayor of London. He moved to the right then in order to get himself elected as prime minister and take advantage of, of a certain mood in the UK. So there is that chance that he moves again. But there's not a huge amount of time left for trade talks in, in uh, the 2020. They have to be done by December. Boris Johnson wants to make it illegal to go beyond that date. And other trade deals that the European Union has done, albeit with less groundwork already there, have taken five and six years to negotiate. So we, we might be quite a bare-bones deal, and we don't really know what that means for Ireland. And, of course, the other threat then is that if it is illegal to negotiate beyond December 2020, what happens if there's no deal reached at that stage? So no deal that we've talked about several times with the moving deadlines we saw throughout 2019 in March, April, October, and eventually January, that's it could actually be back on the table. We could see a no-deal Brexit at the end of 2020. So as much as we've talked about it in 2019, I think we're going to do the same in 2020. And unfortunately, even though one big phase of it is ending in January, there's a lot more to come. Let's talk about the European and local elections. Would you say it was a good day or a bad day at the office for Fine Gael? Uh, Somewhere in the... It was, an, it was an average day. They actually gained seats in the local elections. So Fianna Gael would say it was a good day, although not the, the massive amount of seats that they thought they would. They were aiming for 60 a couple of months out from the local elections. I think at the end it was, it was close to 20 and they were revising down all the time what they could do. Fianna Fáil remains the largest party in local government across the country. Uh, and the, the power, the balance of power has changed in quite a few of the, the councils, uh, away in some cases from... Fine Gael, where other coalitions have moved against them. So the real success for Fine Gael, I think, in May was in the European elections, where they picked up another seat, five MEPs, with Maria Walsh winning another one in Midlands Northwest. So uh, probably a mixed election result for them, but as a government that has been in power for almost 10 years, to still gain seats in the local election also isn't a bad result. Uh, the Maria Bailey story, more bad PR would you accept for Fine Gael? Oh, I think this was probably the many people's political stories of the year and it broke in around that uh, the local and European elections. I think on one of the count days, in fact, I remember sitting listening to her interview on Sean O'Rourke, which has gone down in many people's minds as just this iconic moment of the year uh, while sitting in, uh, in outside the count centre in the RDS. Um, a disastrous year for Maria Bailey and I think you do have to feel for her on a, on a personal level in that it's a year in which she, she lost her, her father and also a year in which she lost her job because she's now deselected as a candidate and won't be running as a Fine Gael candidate at least in the next election some questions over whether she'll try to keep the seat as an independent uh, but a lot of it done by her own hand the Swingate thing was massively mishandled and really I think caught I think caught the public imagination because it showed a level of being out of touch that most people, if they fell off a swing somewhere uh, after having a few drinks, would think, oh, that's a bit annoying and I'm a little sore after it or whatever, but I'm not going to put in this massive claim 
Um, and we've seen it as well with, with Alan Farrow, the TD in Dublin, being golfing again, who also put in what looked like an overstated uh, claim, personal injury claim for him. So it caught the imagination of people, particularly at a time when insurance has been rising. So many people we see recently with crashes, we see businesses having to close down motor insurance going up for a lot of people uh, on the basis, of potentially false basis, according to recent reports, that the insurance companies are saying claims have gone up and the amount of claims, fraudulent claims, are meaning people have to pay more out of their pockets. So an incredibly damaging moment for Fine Gael. And they realised that by cutting their loose in the end that it was going to drag on into the further general election if they'd let her stay on the ticket. Um, I want to move on to an item which is a running sore for the government and it's one, it seems, that could cost the government a lot of votes come the general election next year and that's the whole issue of homelessness. Now, Owen Murphy came into the job promising that he would get the homeless figures down. If anything, they're going up. Um, Is this something that either Owen Murphy can't handle or the government can't handle? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think he's been handed somewhat of a poison chalice. And if you go back to remember when Simon Coveney, who we're all lauding now as the minister, has done a fantastic job. Tonish has done a fantastic job with Brexit. He did say that by July 2017, I think it was, or maybe it was 2018, that there would be no more families and children uh, staying in hotels as emergency accommodation. We know that has not happened, that it's gotten worse. There's more than 10,000 people in emergency accommodation, around 4,000 children who are going to spend Christmas without a home of their own. And it does keep on getting worse. So Murphy faced another vote of no confidence. They are trying to bring in measures. And if you ask any government TV, they'll tell you more social houses have been built than ever before, that the housing market is ramping up and that they're only three years into a, a five-year plan. But I'm not entirely sure people are buying that and there's a huge amount of impatience. It was one of the big issues really came up in the by-elections. No matter who I talked to in every constituency, they were saying housing, housing, housing. And for all sorts of different stories, be it homelessness, be it uh, people who can't get their first-time buyers who can't get on the property ladder, people who've lost their homes, people who have had their relatives lose their homes and moved in with them. A lot of people said they were knocking on doors and eight or nine people were living in the house because one of them had lost a home and they had nowhere else to go. So there's that, there's that level as well of hidden homelessness that aren't recorded in the official statistics, but is definitely out there. So housing, I think, is going to be one of the biggest issues in the next election. You can already see Fianna Fáil moving to say that they're pitching the idea of an SSIA-type saving scheme for first-time buyers. They're pitching other ideas to really try and capitalise that, and I think you're going to see the government get a real bashing in 2020 on housing and health. Now, Fianna Fáil didn't get off too light either in relation to the Timmy Dooley, Niall Collins uh, voting saga. Do you think it's uh, been uh, damaging for them in terms of support? I think it has. I'm not sure how damaging. It certainly was a blip on the radar for Fianna Fáil, given that they had largely had quite a good 18 months on the rise and on the rise. And this came, and really, for two front-bench TDs to have to be sacked like that or certainly suspended on, on pending the investigations was quite damaging also. And again, really strongly going after Lisa Chambers for her own involvement in it. It's still question marks over that as well. One of the rising stars within Fianna Fáil. So certainly damaging, but the sense that I get from people is that you know, a lot of people think, well, all the politicians were at it. They were all voting for other people in the wrong seats. The difference may be with Niall Collins when Timmy Dooley wasn't actually voting in the chamber and those kind of phantom votes. So I think it, it's actually probably more damaging for politics in Leinster House in general than one particular party because it's shown up some of the lax practices between uh, the voting scandal, between the fobbing in scandal, Dara Murphy's attendance, and the printer 
story, a lot of different issues that have kind of culminated to undermine a bit of confidence in politics in Ireland. Well, now, one story that, uh, or one issue rather, that uh, came to the fore this year, which uh, doesn't seem to have uh, captured the same attention in the past, was the issue of immigrants. And Noel Grealish, uh, well, depending on which side of the fence you're on, certainly made the headlines. Um, Is this something that could come up in the general election in the months ahead? I think you are going to see it in certain areas. We saw it with Noel Grealish in what looks as though it was quite a clear tactic towards re-election in his own constituency by stroking uh, some concerns about economic immigrants and migrants coming to Ireland. You also heard his comments about uh, this uh, African asylum seekers were spongers on the state. Uh, you saw Verona Murphy as well do it, obviously now deselected by Fine Gael, but saying that there were security concerns and she's given quite a robust defence of that by saying that there are people who come into the country illegally, that she sees it as the head of the Road Haulage Association and that they disappear out of direct provision or out of the system and that what she was calling for was just to know who was coming into the country, um, which some people might not see as unreasonable. I don't know how big an issue it is going to play but it certainly crept into Irish politics a lot more than it did before in 2019, whether that's because of some politicians seeing electoral advantage or because of some genuine concern and I think we've seen it across Europe in a much more sinister way with more right-wing parties that typically we haven't had in Ireland. So it is going to be one to watch in the election in 2020. I don't think it's going to be one of the very key issues, but I think you are probably going to have some candidates, and I've heard it even from some sitting TDs, saying that people who are trying to undermine them locally have been raising concerns where there's been talk of migrants coming and being resettled in their particular towns. But it also highlights, I think, the, pro- the flaws with the procedure we have for, for dealing with uh, with immigrants and with asylum seekers that come to here. And weirdly, it does go back to the housing crisis because there's actually quite a large amount of the people who are in direct provision have had their asylum approved and granted and are allowed to stay in Ireland but can't get accommodation because they're on low wages, they can't get the job to get into to somewhere and the strain on the housing market is forcing so much competition that uh, they then can't leave direct provision, which has all sorts of knock-on effects. So it's a, it's a bit more nuanced than what I think some of the politicians have put out there so far and hopefully it won't be uh, certainly a racist issue in 2020 even if there are concerns about it. Finally and very briefly Sean the resignation of Darren Murphy of Fine Gael has narrowed the government's majority rather in the Dáil and there's speculation that if another vote of no confidence was to be raised in the House it could drive us into a general election. Based on what you're hearing there's mixed views that it could be a general election in February. Others are saying late April, early May. What's your own bet based on what you're hearing around Leinster House? Certainly a lot of the politicians, Fingain and Fianna Fáil, have been saying Easter or May, a little bit later, but for different reasons, because they've got work to get done, because they want to get a few things ticked through the doll. But I don't think it is going to last that long. If I was putting a bet right now, I would say February. I think this is more electorally advantageous for the T-shift to go in February after what's probably going to be a Brexit deal in January and Stormont possibly up and running as well, two wins that they wouldn't have otherwise, and to go in there rather than waiting for something else to befall the government in the opening few months. Uh, I also think Micheál Martin may feel it's in his advantage to go relatively early at the moment. I think if there was an election today, he would probably be T-shift tomorrow. So he has a bit of a headwind behind him. The, all, this, all this done, I suppose, is left to actually name a date. We spent the last three years saying, oh, definitely this year there'll be election, definitely this year, and we'll be wrong every time, but now we're down to knowing it's going to come in the next few months, and uh, when exactly is still a bit uncertain. 
There you go. That's uh, Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, speaking to me earlier and looking back at some of the big political stories of the year. If you do want to get in touch, our text number is 0861800658. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. As I said, the text number is 0861800658. Now, a major investigation is underway after €12,000 in cash went missing from Drogheda Garda station last month. According to a report in the Herald newspaper, senior sources say that it is suspected that the sum was stolen by someone who works at the station. Now, LMFM has been in touch with Ungarda Shia Kona and they've issued a statement to us. And the statement says, Ungarda Shia Kona can confirm that an internal investigation is underway following the disappearance of a large sum of cash at Drogheda Garda station. A chief superintendent from outside the Loud Garda division has been appointed to inquire into the matter. And for operational reasons, they're saying nothing else at this time. Well, to discuss this and concerns perhaps that the public have, I'm joined in studio by the Mayor of Drogheda, uh, Councillor Paul Bell. Uh, first of all, Paul... €12,000 going missing, not from a bank, not from a shop, but from a Garda station. I mean, what would your concerns be? Uh, Good morning. Well, the concerns would be, obviously, uh, Ken, is that a large sum of money is available to be removed from a Garda station. Uh, Members of the public who read this article in the Evening Herald uh, would have said, well, how is that possible? Uh, What's the procedure for taking care of cash? Or is this cash evidence? Uh, does it affect any ongoing investigation? Uh, and basically, uh, there's a kind of a state of disbelief that this could happen. Now, I suppose there's a conflict because when you compare the statement of Angela Shearconnor, the official statement, compared to what's in the Evening Herald, uh, the Garda statement obviously is talking about let's have an urgent investigation into the matter and try and clarify what exactly happened uh, and, and what goes on from there. But again, it's a question of public confidence. And uh, it's not the first time uh, that cash has uh, been removed from a Garda station. But it's certainly something I don't ever remember happening in Drogheda Garda station. Well, that's uh, you, you touched there on public confidence. I mean, uh, we normally look to the Gardaí, if you like, as uh, the guardians of law and order. Mm. But uh, have the public, if you like, a reason to be concerned uh, about, if you like, the credibility of Angarda Shiakona when something like this happens? I don't think they have a need to be unsure about the credibility of Angarda Shiakona. At the end of the day, uh, there's nobody saying, for instance, that it's a member of Angarda Shiakona. There's nobody saying that it's a civilian. Uh, what's been said here, there's an ongoing investigation by uh, a superintendent or senior guard officer appointed from outside the area. The issue for for the members of the public in Drogheda is that the Garda Shiakona have been fighting a very successful war on crime, a very successful war against uh, the feuding gangs. Uh, and, of course, people are saying, well, does this in any way impact on those investigations and possible prosecutions? And that's a very, very uh, you know, understandable question uh, to be raised. At the end of the day, the Gaddisher Corner have to answer for themselves. But I would ask that the, uh, the most senior Gaddisher Corner members in Drada would clarify to the public as soon as possible exactly what has gone on, and to try and definitely allay the fears of the public and the concerns of the law-abiding citizens of the town. And I'm only saying that because of what the Evening Herald has actually stated. 
I mean, if somebody found a sum of money and they decided, I'll leave this in with the Gardaí mm-hmm. uh, in the hope that if somebody lost money and they want to claim it, they could go to one Garda Shia Kona. Mm-hmm. Does this type of thing, if you like, uh, affect people's confidence in on Garda Shia Kona? Well, it would raise a question. Uh, confidence matter, I don't know, but it would raise a question. And the question it does raise is, what is the procedure for handling such matters? It is astonishing that €12,000 allegedly can be left lying in a place, unsafe, not secured and maybe undocumented. Uh, and that's uh, that's something which definitely has to be clarified. And I do wish the uh, the superintendent that's been appointed success in the investigation on the basis of restoring, uh, you know, the confidence that needs to be restored to the public when they hear of such matters. Okay, well, it's something we'll uh, keep an eye and an ear on in the coming weeks. That's uh, the mayor of Drogheda, Councillor Paul Bell. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Okay, our text number, by the way, is zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight and. You've been busy this morning. Marie Cairns, what exactly are people in the Loudmead area saying this morning? Well, good morning, Ken, and good morning to all those listening in. Frank and Drogheda phoned in in relation to the sum of money that has gone missing from Drogheda Garda Station, which, of course, you mentioned is reported to be €12,000. And Frank thinks this should be investigated. Well, it is, as we read from the statement. And But he feels that the outcome of the investigation should be made public. feels that that's very, very important in terms of you know, confidence and something not being swept under the carpet. Debbie was also in touch and she was listening to your interview with uh, Kieran Staunton and was very interested in that. She's actually home for Christmas and although was not thinking yet about moving home permanently, has says friends of hers have come home and a huge issue for them is insurance. It, oh, it is a big issue for don't everybody. Don't get us started, Debbie. Yes, so she was very interested in that topic of conversation. If I can move then, Ken, to a story we were covering last week. Uh, whereby a number of patrons uh, fell ill after attending an event in the D Hotel on Friday, December 13th. At the time, we read out a statement from the management who had called in all the appropriate bodies. The D Hotel in Drogheda. That's right, to carry out the investigation. And I just have a statement from uh, management this morning. If you can bear with me for a moment, I'll read it out. Just to say that the management of the hotel want to uh, make it known the following extensive investigation. It has now now been confirmed by the HSE that the source of these incidents was the winter vomiting bug. Following these reports of illness, the hotel engaged immediately with the appropriate bodies and have worked exhaustively with them since early Monday morning last in order to identify the source of the reported incidents and to comprehensively address all issues and concerns raised. Following this extensive engagement and testing, the HSE have now confirmed the occurrence of neurovirus, more commonly commonly known as the winter vomiting bug, this airborne viral illness unfortunately prevalent at this time of year is very contagious and can be easily and quickly spread when people congregate in large numbers. The hotel goes on to say that as part of our early engagement with the appropriate bodies we were advised that the vomiting bug was the probable cause of the reported issue and in light of this the team at the D swiftly put into place a series of measures to prevent the spread of the bug starting last Monday morning and these measures included deep cleans of all public areas of the hotel by expert independent parties 
Any staff members showing even remote symptoms of illness were put on sick leave for the required period. The water supply throughout the hotel has been extensively tested and all tests have confirmed no issue whatsoever with the public water supply or with water systems at the D Hotel. This process included extensive testing of all ice making facilities which independent tests have also confirmed no issues of concern. So the implementation of these very best practice procedures which started almost immediately appears, say, the hotel to have been very successful but the hotel will remain vigilant to ensure that this continues to be the case. From last Monday morning we sought to individually contact all persons who have been affected and we will continue to engage with them including updating them individually with this confirmation from the HSE. We are most grateful for the patience shown by those persons as we have worked tirelessly over the past few days to properly and responsibly establish the fact. Finally, the management want to thank the staff at the hotel for pulling together for the huge combined effort and says we are very proud of our team's determination in difficult and demanding circumstances to continue to provide the highest level of service to all of our much-valued patrons and friends at the DE Hotel. So we're happy to clarify that. And I'm sure they're relieved that that, that they've got to the bottom of it. But Ken, are you off over Christmas? Yeah, more or less. More yeah, or less. Taking it easy. I'm yeah. off because we're finishing today and I'm looking forward to yeah. it. But not everybody is, of course. And last Friday, representatives of organisations who will be providing emergency and essential services over the festive period gathered for a special event in Drogheda, which was hosted by the Mayor of Drogheda, Paul Bell. I went along myself to speak to some of those present who will be working on Christmas Day. And first I asked the Mayor why he decided to organise this event. Well, since becoming mayor uh, on several occasions, uh, it used to be the tradition that I would visit each work location where emergency and essential services personnel were located. Uh, there's such a varied group of them now, it became impossible to actually complete that task. So, with, in conjunction with Joe McGuinness of Low County Council, we decided we would invite everybody in uh, who is committed to working not just Christmas Day, but through the holiday period. So, as you can see, it's surely been a good representation of the emergency and essential service groups, and there is a difference between an essential service and an emergency group, some people that we don't even think about over the Christmas period. That's right, because while most of us are sitting in our warm houses, chucking yes. into our yes. Christmas dinner, there's a lot of people out yeah. there doing absolutely Trojan work. Well, there are people providing emergency services, being called in response. There are people providing care and social services to the elderly, to people with disabilities in their home. That still goes on every day. Uh, and there are also people like the Samaritans who are on the phone talking to people through that very difficult period. And we all know that Christmas time can be a great challenge for people, especially those who are lonely. And this is just a formal thank you. This is a formal thank you uh, and it's a great chance too for emergency personnel and essential service personnel to meet each other under the one roof uh, and show, share some stories and obviously wish each other well. There's also another thing I'd like to express, uh, Marie, is that people forget that the, uh, all these people are either volunteers or they work full-time in services, but their families also make that big sacrifice throughout the holiday period. And a special note, note too for those providing public service overseas on the UN mandate, uh, members of the Irish Defence Forces and members of Angara Siakana who are from the area here and we'll be thinking about them over the Christmas holiday and their families. Martin Keary with the National Ambulance Service. You're working Christmas Day? I am. Does it bother you? No, I don't actually like Christmas. So what will your day involve? Um, being at the whole day, 
tending to the people of the northeast of the country. Um, it's one of our particularly more busier days in general. Really? Yeah. Um, we tend to do about 14,500 calls a year in Drogheda, 365 days of the year, so we're very, very busy in general in the station. And will you get a Christmas dinner? Maybe, maybe not. Um, more likely eating out of the vehicle, which is not really suitable. But And how many of you will be on duty? Uh, four. Two crews. Um, we have two crews on during the day and one crew on at night in the Drada area. Was it a case of pulling the short straw or did you offer? No, it's um, we're rostered on. We have a, a rolling roster and I'm actually off next year. But this year, yeah, I'm, I'll be working 12 hours. What would your typical call be on a Christmas day, or is there a typical call? No, um, the good thing about our job is you never know what you're going to, and it never gets boring. Every call is different, and in general, it can be anything from children to adults to elderly people you wouldn't know, so... So it could be a road traffic accident or it could be something at home? It could be anything, yeah. Home calls, calls inside the road, calls assisting other colleagues and other services. You wouldn't know. Well, I hope it's a quiet one for you. Tomás Whelan, you're from Clarehead Lifeboat. So will you be on call on Christmas Day and over the Christmas period? We are indeed, yeah. We're called 365, 324 hours a day. Christmas, Easter, doesn't matter. We're on call all the time. So how many of you would be waiting for that call? How many would be needed if you needed to launch the lifeboat? Well, overall, we've, we've got a staff between shore crew and crew, about 50. So we need about half that really to come between the LOM then to the shore crew, you know. So in around 15, 20, we'll all be taking part. And have you ever had occasion where you've had to go out on Christmas Day? Not that I can remember. Not my time, tenure in the life, but, but maybe the lads before me have, but I just can't remember a time when we're at Christmas Day. Thanks be to God. So far. And please God, it won't happen this year. Hopefully not. No, hopefully. Hopefully it won't. Hopefully uh, Sandy comes down the chimney and the lifeboat stay in the shed Christmas Day, hopefully. Joan Connor, you'll be working over the Christmas. What do you do? I'm the catering service in Our Lady of Lords in the ED department. I give the people the food when they come in. The emergency department, that's a busy one. It is, yeah. They have a lot coming through the whole time, so 24-7 service. And, of course, over Christmas, they still have to be fed. They do, yeah. And it's, it's, it can be a busy time, even at Christmas now. There's a lot of people come to the hospital now, so you never shut down. You're kept going the whole time. What will your day involve? Just going around giving the food to all the patients. Uh, everyone that comes in, they're fed. They can be there overnight, kept on beds for three and four days, as you know. Which it's unfortunate, but they... Make them comfortable and look after them well and make sure the nurses are great, the doctors, the whole lot. So I supply all the food and the tea. So makes them better, get them in and get them out. Hopefully. And do you mind working on Christmas Day? No, 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 no. It's, it's, you've done it for a long time, so you don't mind. Will you get a chance to have dinner still with your family? Oh, yeah, 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 you do, yeah, yeah. They're very obliging our supervisors that looks after us and they're very good to us and try and give everyone a bit of Christmas, even the nurses and the doctors, everyone tries and get. So it's a good community working in the ED. We all look after one another. Well, I hope it's a quiet one for you this Christmas. Yes, me too, Marie. <laughs> Carol Parker, you're a member of Boyne Fishermen Rescue and Recovery Service. You're never off, are you? No, we're always on call, always on call. There's someone always there ready if we're needed. 
Is it a particularly busy time of year or do you find now that you're busy all the time? Well, I would say we're busy all the time, but I think maybe this time of the year it sort of highlights to people their losses and their, their stresses. So maybe sometimes it does sort of drive them to do things that they would regret. So we are always on call for these people. And it's not just in Drogheda that you operate, you help in searches all over the country, don't you? Yes, we do at the moment. We have a a recovery at the moment up in Antrim. So we go all over the country. Wherever we're needed, we'll go because we have divers, trained divers, recovery search people. We've got coxswains, everybody who's qualified. And we're all CFR qualified to help in those situations. What would your advice be to anybody who maybe sees somebody in distress by a river or sea? Always call the emergency services. Always, If they have our local numbers, they can always call us. We're on 24-hour call. But always call 999. The guards will direct them to us. And if they can go and talk to the person, sometimes that will just help prolong the moment for them and sometimes they can be talked down and encouraged and helped but the message is even though it's christmas the services are there ready to help we are always there ready to help christmas makes no difference to us at all margaret fatty from the samarathans in drogheda will you be operating on christmas day i will indeed yes um our service will be there as it is 24 hours a day it's 365 days a year and we will be fully operational on Christmas Day. Yeah, it's just another day for us, you know. And Christmas can be a tough time for a lot of people. Do you find it's a busy time? It's busier. Um, the I suppose the main uh, type of call is the main it? type of call we would have are people who are not involved in a family scenario, who are isolated, who are lonely who are on their own, uh, who have memories maybe of Christmas past and it's so it's a difficult it's a difficult time for them without a doubt and it's uh, for them to be able to ring us and to even just to have a chat you know just to have human contact on the day can make such a difference and that's why we are all there for everybody. It takes a very special person to give up their own time on Christmas Day and I'm in awe of all of you volunteers here today but I think particularly when you're the voice at the other end of a line that's offering some kind of solace to somebody who may be lonely or in distress, does that have an impact on you and your day? For me personally, it's uh, very important for me that I give a part of my day to people who aren't as fortunate as I have. Uh, We all have a story and I was helped many years ago and for me this is my gratitude this is my way of repaying uh, the fact that somebody was there when I need them so if I can do that well then that's 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 good for me yeah so for anyone that's in need of an ear at the end of the phone someone to talk to do you have a number that people can contact absolutely it's a free phone number it's 116123 And there will be somebody there to answer that call. If they don't get an answer immediately, please, please don't give up. We will get to you as quickly as we can. So we'll just give that phone number again, please. It's 116123. 116123 for anybody who may need some help on Christmas Day. And there you go, that report compiled by our producer Marie Cairns and our best wishes to all those people who in a very unselfish way give their time on Christmas Day uh, to those of us uh, who are perhaps uh, unable if you like, to get by on their own and indeed do it in a very caring and thoughtful way. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. 
Ken Murray on LMFM. Okay, keep those texts coming to 086-1800-658. Now, let's take a look at some of the many local stories that made the news in the Loud Mead area during the past 12 months. Our head of news, Michael Carlin, has been going through the LMFM news files of the past year. 2019 began tragically with the horrific murder of 57-year-old Elzbieta Petrowska in RD on January 8th. Her son, 32-year-old Thomas, was subsequently charged with her murder. Richard Lynch owned the house in which Elzbieta was living in with her husband. He spoke to LMFM News at the scene. Good tenants and lovely people, and we couldn't say a wrong word about them, but the lovely garden, and we used to get Thomas off them, and we're very happy to people, but we couldn't believe this morning this happened. So here I almost seven years, you know, since we moved out, and they're from Poland, and lovely people. So absolutely no hassle with them whatsoever, but it's a pity, you know. They're well-known, and I think the husband's working locally here, and very nice people. They're known to the town, and you'd meet them out and about, and they found the destiny here, as the fellas, but unfortunately, it came to a tragic end. Also in January, thousands of nurses around the country talked to the picket lines in the ongoing row over pay and staffing. We spoke to INMO members in Drogheda and Navan. We're striking here today because we feel that the continued recruitment and retention crisis across the nursing and professions is no longer sustainable. Um, we say there is a reason for that, uh, and that is because the wages um, for nurses and midwives in the public sector are no longer competitive. On the sporting front, Ashbourne Rugby Club became the first team in history to win three consecutive All-Ireland Junior Cups. A relieved, delighted and somewhat emotional Scott Broughton spoke to LMFM Sport after the victory over Enniscorthy. Well, I think those three words, you've summed it up completely. Um, oh, that, I'm, I'm speechless, to be honest with you, but these lads, uh, they're unbelievable. In February, Minister Owen Murphy was in Castle Bellingham where he launched an ambitious new plan to make the Drogheda, Dundalk, Newry region an investment alternative to Dublin and Belfast. The M1 corridor links the two biggest cities on the island of Ireland. Within 60 minutes of the corridor are 2.3 million people. There is access to three airports, four deep water ports and a road and rail network connecting millions of people and many, many different businesses. It's a fantastic initiative to help promote investment in the region. Drogheda's simmering gangland feud erupted again in February with a gun attack in broad daylight at the M1 retail park in Mel. 39-year-old Brendan Maguire was shot a number of times as he sat in a car. Thishuk Leo Varadkar visited the town shortly afterwards and told LMFM News that he would speak to the Garda Commissioner about additional resources for the town would really encourage anyone who's information to pass it on to the Gardaí uh, and I'll certainly uh, speak to the Garda Commissioner uh, about the request for additional resources for uh, the Drahad area. We have 14,000 Gardaí now, more than we've had for maybe 10 years. Um, a Garda overtime budget of €100 million, Euros, which I'm, I'm told is roughly four times um, the kind of budget they would have uh, in England. Um, so we just need to make sure that those resources are targeted properly and targeted uh, where they're most needed, including places like Drahad. In March, LMFM revealed that 37-year-old Lisa Smith from Dundalk had been arrested in Syria on suspicion of membership of ISIS. In December, she was deported from Turkey and was subsequently charged with a terrorist offence. She's due to appear in court again next month. On St Patrick's weekend, tragedy struck the village of Carlingford, with three young people losing their lives. Ruth Maguire, a 30-year-old mother of three, was one of those who died. Her sister Rachel Wilkinson spoke exclusively to LMFM and called for barriers to be erected around the water's edge to prevent further tragedies. 
Everyone seems to be in agreement that it's a good idea, especially given that there are so many young ones that come to this town. Um, It's just we just don't want this to happen to another family. We don't want another family to go through the heartache and even so much as, you know, the days of waiting to find out. At the beginning of April, a new multicultural football tournament for children was launched in Dundalk. Community Restorative Justice were co-organisers alongside Dundalk Football Club, Merhevenamore FC, The House in Cox's Domain and the Dundalk Islamic Centre. Imam Anua Boy told LMFM News that it provides a way for people to find out more about his community. This will be a great opportunity for those who may not understand that these are the Muslims to come up and play together. But our kids are already in different clubs, different teams. This is a great opportunity for us to join as a multicultural uh, society because Islam is safe, it's a multicultural religion where it engulfs everybody. So this is a great opportunity which we are looking forward Staying with sport and also in April, we were live from Summer Hill as double grand national winner Tiger Roll made a triumphant return home. Air reporter Helena Mullins spoke to winning trainer Gordon Elliott, jockey Davy Russell and elated owner Michael O'Leary. People are all raving about the lovely personality that Tiger Roll has and he just seems to just thrive on this public I attention. I all about the lovely personality I have. Oh, oh yeah. yes, of course. Of yours, of course, as well. But mind the bloody horse. What about me? <laughs> April ended with more bloodshed on the streets of Drogheda. A gun attack in Hardman's Gardens left one man seriously injured after he was shot twice in a drive-by shooting. That's terrible, like, bad state of affairs, you know, shouldn't be happening. I just think they're in the whole time with the fla and everything coming up and the whole lot, you know. Yeah, it was a shock, like, I was walking the night shift, I just woke up, basically, I basically woke up at half six in the evening and heard about it, you know, and mm. came to walk down and seen the guard, who was still there, it's just crazy, like, it's just, I don't know, lawless. That shooting on April 25th was followed by a weekend of mayhem as houses and cars were destroyed in a spate of petrol bomb attacks across the town. In light of the escalating violence, Garda Commissioner Drew Harris and Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan visited the town to meet with senior Garda. Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan reassured the public that everything possible was being done to try and contain the feud. I have to protect Drogheda. Drahad is uh, and loud are, are, are my responsibility. I'm here to make sure that people are safe. So there's little or no point in me coming out last week and repeating what I had said. What I did was I engaged with the people who have the wherewithal to provide the resources to me. I now have been given a considerable package. Uh, obviously, it will be visible, visible presence on the street, but it, it, it allows me to have a proactive approach to dealing with the difficulties rather than the, the ordinary reactive approach that we, that we had uh, heretofore. Also in April, residents at the Direct Provision Centre in Mosny staged a protest against what they claimed were the unsatisfactory conditions for asylum seekers. Please look at us as people. Just because an, I'm an asylum seeker, it, it, everyone has a right to seek asylum in another country. I'm not here because of any other reason but that I am looking for protection. Okay, Europe is a, is a beacon for human rights. So then why can't you treat other people in, in, in the nicest of ways? You, do, you don't have to treat people like they're nothing just because they're in a vulnerable position. There was tragedy on the sporting front locally during May as young Navin cyclist Sean Lynch and footballer Greg Hogg died suddenly. May also saw the 2019 local and European elections taking place with voting across 11 local constituencies in Louth and Meath. 
History was made on Meath County Council as Fine Gael's Yemi Adenuga became the first black woman elected to a local authority. This victory is not just a victory for Yemi Adenuga, it's a victory for women. It's a victory for ethnic minorities. I'm so excited that we're making history in this country. And I'm excited for young people as well because I've always worked with young people and I have loads of plans for young people. I think that the next generation needs to get involved in the things that happen in this country. American heavy metal superstars Metallica headlined at Slane Castle during June. Following the gig, we were joined in studio by Adrian Murray, whose nephew Christopher Bell had been killed tragically a few weeks prior to the concert. Christopher, from Dulique, was a huge Metallica fan, and the band paid tribute to him during the show. The gig was going on and on, and I might have been a kid, and I was just saying, they're not going to play at And all of a sudden, then out of the blue, they were starting the first few cards of Nothing Else Matters. Yeah. And James Hadfield comes along and just announces, he says, this is for our, our friend we never met, Christopher Bell. This goes out to a friend of ours we never met, Christopher Bell. During the summer, four local children lost their lives in separate tragedies. 14-year-old Jill Amante died after drowning just off Sea Point Beach while out swimming with friends. Nine days later, seven-year-old Chantelle Keenan died in a tragic accident in the driveway of a house in Drogheda. Four days after that second tragedy, 10-year-old Joshua Hill drowned in a hot tub at his home in Carlingford. While in August, 15-year-old Mikey Leddy from Navan died following a fall while on holiday in Lanzarote. Record-breaking crowds of more than 600,000 people enjoyed the FLA in Drogheda over eight days, making the attendance the biggest in the trad music events history. In sport, Dundalk's Kate O'Connor won silver in the heptathlon at the European Athletics Under-20 Championships in Sweden, becoming Ireland's first-ever female major championship multi-event medal winner. Indeed, it was Ireland's first multi-event medal of any kind in 32 years. In August, the ongoing gang feud in Drogheda claimed its first life. I'd like to condemn those responsible for this shooting here today, for this murder of a, of a young man. The residents and local community are appalled at what happened here today. Clarahead is a quiet, picturesque fishing village. It's a sleepy wee village. For this to happen at a very busy shop, a very busy caravan park, with lots of activity, lots of young children coming and going, those responsible should cease this feud straight away. Local councillor Tom Cunningham there reacting to the murder of Keith Brannigan in Clotherhead on August 27th. The 29-year-old was the first fatality in the ongoing drugs war that had resulted in more than 90 incidents, including attempted murders, petrol bomb attacks and kidnappings. Dundalk boxer Amy Broadhurst won European Elite Bronze during August to add to her 17th national title she won in February. September was a big month for local sports teams. The Loud Ladies became All-Ireland Junior Champions following their win over Fermanagh at Croke Park. Half-back Kira Nolan spoke to LMFM Sport after the final whistle. Absolutely unbelievable. After last year, you know, we were we went back in November and we just worked and worked and worked and we knew what Croke Park was like. Last year we came, like a lot of us, there was five of us under the age of 21, like, so to get back here and to know what it's like and to know how it works and just come out with a win is absolutely unbelievable <laughs> Meanwhile LMFM was live at Oriel Park as Dundalk defeated Shamrock Rovers 3-2 to clinch their 5th SSE Airtricity League Premier Division title in 6 years 
Our commentary team of Adrian Taff and analyst John Flanagan watch the action unfold. The referee needs to look at his watch. He doesn't. It's with Lopez. And there is the final whistle. And the Dundalk have claimed the 14th league title. Their fifth in six years. Their first for Vinnie Perth. And despite the appeals of the stadium announcer a few moments ago, Oriel Park is flooded by supporters. And they'll celebrate. And they'll revel. And it's deserved. Definitely deserved. And the first time of asking. No results needed. Go down and done the business against the Barge rivals tonight. As you say, the fans ran to the pitch. They were never going to keep them off. What a wonderful occasion for them all tonight. Fabulous atmosphere. The crowd turned out in numbers in a horrible evening. And the dog put on a performance. And Rovers, to the credit, put on a performance worthy of, of the league decider. Nave Menino were crowned aloud senior hurling champions during September. And the local sporting successes continued in October as Ratoth claimed their first ever Mead senior football championship title. While Newtown Blues secured their third successive loud senior football title. In Mead senior hurling, Kildalki ended Kiltail's hopes of a record equaling six in a row when they claimed the Jubilee Cup after a replay. In November, 39-year-old Richie Carberry became the latest victim of the ongoing gang feud in Drogheda. He was shot dead outside his home in Bettystown. Superintendent Fergus Dwyer said the victim had been warned of a threat to his life. Last night, shortly after 11.30pm, Gardaí were summoned to the scene here at Castle Martin Estate, where a 39-year-old male was found down on the footpath behind me here. He had been shot. He had just returned home to his house here and while he was getting out of his car and closing his gate, we believe he was approached at that time by uh, one or more individuals. On the sporting front, the year ended with provincial success for Cullen Club Mattock Rangers as they claimed the Leinster Intermediate Football Championship with a six-point win over Kilkenny champions Mullinavat. Manager Niall Callan gave his reaction after the final whistle. Mullinavat were just... In our faces, they were they were hungry. They they wanted it, and you know we it took us it took us 25, 30 minutes to realise that I think. But uh, full credit to Mullinavat, you know we, we had to dig deep, you know, and, and thankfully it showed in the end. Finally, on behalf of everyone in the LMFM newsroom, I'd like to wish you a very happy Christmas and a peaceful and prosperous 2020. There you go. That is a superb piece of work there by Michael Carlin, local radio at its best. A report like that can take 15 minutes to listen to, but can take days and days and days to put together, going through all the stories, all the clips and selecting the appropriate ones to, if you like, sum up, uh, if you like, the events of the last 12 months. So to Michael Carlin and everybody in the newsroom, well done. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Keep those texts coming at 2086 now, if you're a motorist and you live between Kells and Clonee, the bad news is that tolls on the M3 motorway are to increase from next week. Car owners will pay an additional 10 cents for passing through each of the two tolls on the road and bringing the cost per toll per car to €1.50 per toll or €3 for a return journey, an average cost of €750 per year. What makes the toll increase all the more extraordinary is that the toll company Euro Link is making close on 1 million euro profit 
per month. One man who is not impressed is Hugh Morris, an auctioneer based in Kells, who was on Facebook at the weekend, giving out yards, so to speak, and he joins me now. Uh, Hugh, Eurolink might say it's only 10, per, 10 cent per car per toll. What's all the fuss about? I think the fuss here is at the end of the day, it's a big blow for North Mead. Uh, although we welcomed and I lobbied for the M3 back uh, in the late 90s uh, and early 2000s, uh, we eventually got it in June 2010 uh, with the cost of 1 billion euro to build the road. Uh, 600, over 600 million of that came from the taxpayers in the country uh, to purchase the lands on that road. In Kells, we had to lobby and in North Mead, we had to lobby to get the road extended as far as cows. And for that uh, privilege, we got an extra toll gate on the M3. And from that moment in time, whatever, uh, what we're being told now by TII is that this is due to inflation. But yes, the figures, the numbers on the road have increased from 2010. There was 21,000 vehicles on it. There's over 35,000 vehicles travelling on that road. And that's an increase year on year in the past number of years on it. So inflation... That answer is just, it's not excusable. Now, uh, TII are saying that the M3 is the only toll road in the country that will see car drivers and motorcyclists paying more. Does this suggest that uh, motorists that travel from Fermanagh, Cavan, Kells, Navan, all the way into Dublin in both directions each day, do you think they're being treated as an easy touch? I think so. When you look at the numbers on the TII website and you see that at the Black Bull, uh, up near uh, Bracetown, the, the Mead Dublin border uh, toll gate, there's 20,000 vehicles travelling through that. Well, at the Kells uh, toll gate, there's 14,000 vehicles travelling through on a daily basis. Uh, I feel that we are an easy touch. It's so funny that uh, Minister Ross was down in Mead only a number of weeks ago saying that he would run forward with the study on the rail to Navan. He excluded Kells and North Mead and the people of the hinterland and Cavan, and Monaghan and so forth. Uh, and yet they turn around and put an extra charge on here. So I, I think they'll definitely get the money for the study uh, for the rail to Navin, how it is. Well, now, that very point, you, you, you bet me to the point, there's been a push on to get, if you like, the rail line between Navin and Dublin, if you like, operational again. Doesn't this suggest that the government is taking the approach that there's no need to upgrade the line between Navin and Dublin because if everybody starts using the rail line, less and less people will use the M3 and therefore the investors in the M3 will lose out? Isn't that the case? I think if you look at the numbers again on the TII uh, uh, website, you will see that there's 20,000 people going through uh, the toll at Bracetown. When you get uh, at, at Black Bull, sorry, when you get to Bracetown, the numbers on the road at that point increase to four, over 40,000. And when you get into where we all know the Dublin Mead border at Keypack, it increases to 60,000 vehicles. Now, there is a massive disparity there. People are not using uh, the motorway, the infrastructure, because of these toll charges. And this is a, a retrograde step by increasing these toll charges on this road. 
OK, Hugh, well, as the fella says, keep up the fight. We're going to leave it there. And uh, motorists, as I said, travelling between Cavan and Dublin can expect that increase in the two tolls on the M3 between Kells and Dublin starting next week. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. OK, it's just coming up to uh, 10.45 on this uh, Monday morning. Now, it's that time of year where people exchange presents. And indeed, as we get older in life, sometimes we look back and ask ourselves, what was the best? Best Christmas present we've ever received. Our reporter and producer Marie Cairns has been speaking to people in Dundalk. Well, I suppose I'd have to say my son, born on the 10th of December, 48 years ago. So almost a Christmas baby. <laughs> almost, yes. And a number of my grandchildren as well uh, are Christmas babies. So that's absolutely my the biggest gift anybody could ask for. I'd say a friend from um, America who would have always sent home gifts for us every Christmas. I would have been individual gifts. Could be a purse one year. It could be a money box another year. It could be jewellery another year. She, so she really made Christmas very special. And probably because it came all the way from America. America yes, friends of our mother. So it really was. It's one of her made Christmas very special. New mobile phone I got from my daughter. When did you get it? Uh, well, um, uh, last last Christmas, and it was lovely. So it was. She's very good. It wasn't expected, was it not? No, definitely not. No, she's only very young, so you wouldn't expect anything like that big. So I loved it. <laughs> I got married at Christmas, so I got a husband. <laughs> well, I, my parents got married at Christmas as well, so we kept it in tradition. And how long are you married? Five years. Five years. This so year. you've kept them. I've kept them. Uh, it was a table tennis set, which. Uh, caused no end of trouble at home because um, we had to open out the dining room oh, table to do it and we were playing table tennis to that table tennis balls were flying left right and centre the Christmas tree was going everywhere so it was, it was a fun Christmas present and plenty of competition plenty of competition and lots of shouting from my mother saying mind you'll knock that over <laughs> and can you remember what age you were oh it was about nine or ten I think nine or ten so so it didn't cost a fortune, but it, it was a great... A fortune, though, but it cost a fortune some of the things that got broken like around the house. But other than that, it was OK. It's great to be above the ground for Christmas. Happy... And not, and not down under, under the sod. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Happy to be alive. Happy to be alive, yeah, because I had a bad accident, and thanks be to God, I'm above the ground. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, enjoy. And you too. Happy Christmas. To my daughter. Your daughter. Yeah. And when was she born? This in November. So it was just before Christmas. And how long ago was that? Over 70 years. Over 70 years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you've had lots of other presents over the years. Oh, I've had it, but I can't remember. <laughs> um, well, the funniest one that I got was um, I asked Santa for a horse and he doesn't take horses. So I got like a wee rocking horse and a wee horse head with a stick. <laughs> yeah. I was quite upset, but Sherlock. But you probably enjoyed it. I did, I made the most of it, and that's, that's what it's all about. The best one or the worst one? Or the one I didn't get? Oh, well, the one you didn't the get, if I you want. The one I didn't get when I was very, very young was paints and a paint, a painting set and a painting brush. So, yeah, paint and a painting paint brush. brush. I even wrote away to some, you know, there used to be, you know, magazines at yes, the time yes. to see would they send me one, but they never did. No. And did you ask Santa? I did. And Santa must have, must no. have, you must have been naughty. No, there was too many of us. There <laughs> <laughs> was an awful gang of us in my house. How many? Uh, seven and my parents. Nine altogether, but seven kids. That was oh, some crowd for Santa to get around. Yes, it was. Um, a toy kitchen when I was about six. Did you love it? Loved it, but I had, I had a note that I had to share it with my sister, so I wasn't too impressed with that. Oh, Santa wanted you to share? Yeah, not too happy because she didn't want the kitchen. 
<laughs> okay, but I'm sure you did what Santa told you. Yeah, well, for if I wanted what I wanted the next year, I had to. <laughs> um, I got a quad when I was about 15, and that was the, probably the best present that stood out to me. Yeah. Did you have fun? Yeah, loads of fun in it. And I'm sure you drove safe. Absolutely, yeah, of course. Well, the best one we got one when I was a kid, like Santa brought me a red handbag, and I got an easel board and Maltesers, I remember that. Oh, the Maltesers were lovely. They were class, yeah. I still love them to this day. <laughs> so, and were they purposely to match the red bag? I'm I just think thinking. So I think it was a kind of a match, yeah. The red to match the red. Got engaged. You got engaged at Christmas. Well, near, near enough to Christmas, yeah. Oh, how long ago was that? A long time ago. I didn't, I didn't get married then after that. <laughs> Did you not? I'm still single. You're still single. Yeah. But it was good at the time. It was good at the time, yeah. And anything else you can think of? No, I'd just like to wish everybody a happy Christmas that I know and all the people that are out there, all the homeless people and all, happy Christmas. Uh, a bicycle when I was eight, yeah. You were eight and can you remember the colour? Red, I think, or pink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Twelve years ago I was told I was going to be a grandma. How did that make you feel? Marvellous. <laughs> Wonderful. And is the, the baby is 12 years the old now? Baby's 12 now, yeah, yeah. And spoiled by granny? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No. That's special. Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, a piano. <laughs> My dad. And, and can you remember what age you were? Um, I think I was 12. Um, I would have only had a keyboard and stuff before, so I'd only kind of started playing them before then, and then they got me a real piano, so... And have you been playing since? Yeah, I still have the same piano, but I painted it blue, so it's upgraded a wee bit. <laughs> well, the one I can remember was when I was a child, I got a typewriter. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I remember six o'clock in the morning, the bed between mother and father, tap, tap, tap in the wind. So and Santa, you were, and had, you, had you asked Santa for oh, it? Yeah, it was a Santa present, yeah. There was ink everywhere. <laughs> and the ribbon came out. Well, oh, and did you have ambitions to become, do something like a journalist or a secretary? Or? No, but funny enough, I ended up working in a newspaper. But <laughs> the local newspaper, I wasn't a journalist, no. That's so funny. <laughs> There's probably young people out there wondering, what is a typewriter? Anyway, you, Marie, you and I were raised on them. I sure was. And do you know what? Because I'm going to ask you the question. But first of all, I'll tell you what my best Christmas present was. And it was a doll, Ken, but not an average doll because I wasn't into dolls when I was young. She was called Katie Copycat. And you know why? Because she could write. And that was my favourite present from Santa Claus. Right, Katie Copycat. I never heard of her. Katie Copycat. And you could put the pen into her hand and she could write. So it was obviously a sign of things to come because I did have to learn how to use a typewriter when I entered the world of journalism. So what about you? Well, I was having to think about this. I remember getting um, a present very young... Uh, I grew up on a farm and some young boys who grew up on farms are fascinated by tractors. I got a Ford 5000, oh. a, a plough and a trailer okay. and it kept me going for years. Other, I remember my sister getting me a set of headphones because when we were young we had a thing called a 3-in-1 which was a record player, a cassette player and a radio uh, all built in oh, the one fab. unit. And uh, these headphones allowed me to listen to radio stations, records while my father could watch the news. <laughs> and I remember, funny enough, getting older in life and getting a present of you're, you're of, giving more than one here now yeah I, I remember getting a JVC right. video recorder and young okay. people are probably asking what's a video <laughs> recorder but this video recorder allowed me to watch whatever I wanted to record and I used it day in day out day in day out till it practically fell apart there you go and video recorders now are things of the past so I'm sure all the children listening in now are being extra good today Ken. oh of course that ready goes, to uh, get th- that present that they really want yes Chris Santa is Claus. listening in yes yes Chris is here 
here. But first, I just want to go to Kay and Avon before we finish up to say she absolutely thrilled us into the programme today. Enjoys listening to it all year as well and wants to wish everybody a happy Christmas and many happy returns to UK and indeed on behalf of all the team here on the Michael Reed show, the last show of the year and also the last show of the decade. Can you, you bet believe me that? To it. I was going to say I want that. to wish all our listeners a really, really happy and healthy Christmas and I hope you have a lovely new year. I will be back on January 2nd and I hope you'll be back with us because it's going to be some year ahead with a general election looming. But I know you've picked out the last song so you can play us out, Ken. Yes, I- but before we go, a Knockbridge listener okay. loves LMFM, listens all the time, but is disappointed we didn't mention the farmers. Well, I mean, I think it goes without saying that farmers work 365 days a year, in some cases 24 hours a day, pulling calves at 3 and 4 in the morning. I've been there, I know it. So to everybody in Knockbridge, we say hello to all the farmers. Yes, folks, that just about wraps it up. Uh, not only indeed for today, not only indeed for this week, this month, this year, but as Marie said, for this decade, Michael will be back again on Thursday of next week for the first show of 2020. Thanks to Chris Murray on sound and Marie Kearns who produced. For myself, Ken Murray, take care over the Christmas, be nice to each other and I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, we leave you with this classic Boney M and Mary's Boy Child. Mary's Boy Child Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day and man will live Forevermore Because Of Christmas Day Long time ago In Bethlehem So the Holy Bible said Mary's boy child Jesus Christ Was born on Christmas Day Hark now hear the angels sing A king was born today And man will live forevermore Because of Christmas Day Where is boy child Jesus Christ was born on Christmas
joy and laughter people shouted let everyone know there is hope for all to find peace oh my lord you sent your son to save us oh my lord your very self you gave us oh my lord that sin may not enslave us and love may reign once more oh my lord Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 